0: Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today on GovComs, as we celebrate one of our finest episodes from the over 300 episodes of GovComs, We listened back to harvesting and hosting conversations, a conversation that I had with Ian Anderson, who had a distinguished career in the European Union. When we recorded this episode, Ian was the participatory innovation advisor at the European Commission. Ian and I spoke about why communication is leadership made flesh and how to develop your listening skills. Although this episode again was recorded back in 2021, I know these topics are still significant and relevant to government communicators today. I started the podcast by asking Ian about his personal story.
1: Well, I am originally from Copenhagen and uh, I studied uh, Chinese and uh, political science at university and when I finished my degree in 1985 I discovered that there were no big billboards saying uh, candidates this way please uh, and 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 then I got wind of a project starting in Brussels of training uh, European uh, union interpreters in Chinese or rather training Chinese interpreters from China in the European Union so so I did a an, another master 's degree in, in interpreting, moved to Brussels, uh, interpreted for a month, and then started teaching interpretation to to Chinese trainees. So I have trained uh, about one hundred and fifty Chinese government interpreters over, over the first ten years of my uh, my service uh, in the Commission. But, but moved from there increasingly into communication roles and, and became head of communication for the for the interpreting service starting in, in 1996, where I proposed that we, we actually uh, create a, a communication entity uh, to, uh, to make sure that we had good relations with the outside world. Uh, this, this provided uh, a, a very strong platform when we realized a few years later, that that we were were facing a generation change in the interpreting service. That we did not have the interpreters we needed. There was simply a a, a bubble in the demographic that had moved unnoticed. We we went for a communication solution, and in a few years, through through deployment of, of social media and and a real world events, uh, managed to solve the problem and get all the interpreters we needed into universities to train as conference interpreters. From, from there, one, one more thing, David, from there I, I became increasingly disillusioned with, with communication in its classic form uh, and, and found that, that uh, speaking at people and trying to bring messages over to them uh, was, was not as effective as involving them in creating their own messages. So, so I moved increasingly from uh, communication and into participation and, and facilitation of, of conversation. And my my purpose crystallised into helping Europeans have good conversations about how they want to live and work together. So that's, that's my trajectory, as it were, from interpreting to participation.
0: Well, there's certainly a lot in that. And, and perhaps we might start with interpretation. What makes... For a good interpreter,
1: in in my view, the the most important part is is actually intuition and understanding of what are people really trying to say. Uh, you need to have a, a spectacularly deep knowledge of your mother tongue, because that is your tool. That is what you express yourself in, and and then and an almost supernatural feel for for what are people wanting to communicate, so you can bring that across in another language.
0: And does that just come with experience and time or is it is it, is, is it a quality that some people are born with?
1: Well there's the part of part of it is uh, I, I tend to look at it as a brain, brain defect. Uh, you know you have leakage between <laughs> between two languages in your mind and uh and that makes it possible for you to to actually transfer things from one language to another uh but but the the, the intuition part and the and the feeling part i think is is very much innate you can t- train people a lot professionally to develop them but but the the matters of the as you said uh, quoting Pope Francis the the ear of the heart uh, is, is something that I think you are largely born with. Mm. So
0: listen, listening, I imagine, must be a real tool for, for effective interpreters. And when you're speaking to people and, and teaching people around listening skills, what is it, and again, because I suppose those skills are again, you know, required in, in participation. So when you're talking and when you're teaching around the, the skill of listening, what what do you tell people?
1: It's, it's the, the need to, to really listen with, with attention to what people are saying. Most people uh, are, are in a conversation uh, and they're, they're almost holding their breath, ready to jump in as soon as the other person breathes. And they're thinking about what they want to say and what, what their uh, counter argument or rebuttal is going to be. Rather than fully devoting attention to to the person who is speaking or the people who are speaking and and I think the the move from from listening with the intention to break off and and say your own thing to listening with the intention of letting people speak to the end and listening to everything they want to say before anyone uh, comes back in, I think that is a crucial change. And it's something we, we regulate in in uh, assemblies that, that don't uh, have the innate gift by using a talking piece or a talking stick, as some people call it, where whoever holds the talking piece uh, has a right to speak uh, to the end and everyone else has a right to listen with full attention, attention, sorry.
0: It's it's that that's a, a a wonderful insight really isn't it about allowing people you know to have the intention to speak to the end how how can people learn that that quality of of being able to give people the freedom to and the permission to be able to extend and to fully express themselves without wanting to either add to the conversation or, or feel like they are um, wanting to make a contribution that they feel quite genuinely um, will will improve um, the conversation or the outcome of the conversation.
1: I think I think it's it's a training process uh, and and we have uh, in the European Commission run training courses in in what is known as uh, the art of hosting and harvesting conversations that matter. Uh, which which was rebaptized uh, participatory leadership at the commission because our then training managers thought the uh, art of hosting was a little too long haired for for the suits in the bureaucracy, but but really to to uh, to train people in in a number of of what you might call stances, which include listening with the heart, uh, and and to to give them a, a longer experience. Of what it actually means, and and to put people through a, a um, one classic uh, method of, of listening to each other, which is uh, the the world cafe, where people sit in small tables and and have a discussion on a topic of common interest, and then shift around so that you cross fertilize the discussion uh, among the tables over over several rounds. If you lay down the ground rules. And, and explain that this is about listening that that uh, the rules of of um, using a talking piece apply and that you should let people speak to the end the the discovery of the power of a conversation that is actually allowed to breathe uh, will convince most people that that this is a, a superior form of communication
0: it's interesting and and again perhaps in on, on indulgence would you reflect that many of the challenges that communities and society has comes from this inability to listen and this in- inability to understand and this inability to let people say what it is that they want to say.
1: I think it's, it's a a key element in, in a lot of, of government and community and community failure that, that you do not have the conversation and that, that you centrally think that that you can help people by thinking of solutions for them, rather than involving them in in generating their own solutions. And generating solutions do, does start with a conversation. Uh, so so yes, I would would tend to agree that that only by by focusing on on actually listening uh, will will we get to uh, to results that that are sustainable. And, and also that, that people will actually uh, happily engage in rather than, than try to flee from, as it were. Mm.
0: Now, we'll come to participation, and as you beautifully beautifully described there, the art of hosting and harvesting conversations. But if I could take you to that point of disillusionment with traditional comms top-down uh, practice that you obviously were dissatisfied with, what... Exactly, was it that you saw, or you experienced, or you felt that encouraged you to to move on, or to to explore other ways of of creating value for the European Commission?
1: Well, first of all, I was trained in in these arts in in two thousand and nine, uh, and until then, it it really hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that there was another way. Uh, and but after having having been through. Three days of training, uh, the basic training, and then years of, of practice and, and subsequent training, and working with uh, stakeholders, with colleagues in in creating their their own futures, as it were. It it became uh, almost blindingly obvious that that the effectiveness of of spending time in in actually working with with the what you might call the the ultimate client in, in defining what needed to happen was was much faster than than it, than if you tried to to think up a solution and then try to sell it to people uh, which may or may not be the right solution and may not be the right solution for everyone whereas if you if you engage up front and and make sure that that everyone uh, who who is uh, involved or affected is in the room when you discuss the solution you you actually have a chance of getting it right the first time and and if you're not right the first time, uh, work in in quick iterations in in a design thinking mode where where you actually adjust your your ideas to to the emerging reality so so it it seeing it in practice convinced me that that this was really. Uh, the way to go and and after having worked in in policymaking for the past 5 years uh, i can only say that that everything i've seen has confirmed that that when you do involve people up uh, front when you do get the whole system in the room uh, it may take longer in the beginning but but actual implementation and acceptance of the outcomes uh, is very smooth
0: how widespread is the adoption of that practice in the, the European Commission or is it still on the fringes?
1: It's, it's partly on the fringes and partly, partly being mainstreamed in the sense that, that um, the, the actual people who, who are capable of, of holding such a process and, and going through with it are probably uh, in the low hundreds, uh, and the people who can really lead them are probably in, a, in the low tens. But, but the, the central policy hub of the Secretariat General uh, has, has put out strong recommendations to, to go this way, and I have been teaching courses in participatory policymaking. For policymakers uh, in uh, in the center, to to make people understand uh, that you don't have to be in complete co-creation mode, in the sense that you you really go out and catch the citizens and ask them, you know, what what is it we can do to you. But you can work uh, at different degrees of involvement, and involving stakeholders certainly in in uh, discussions and in, in consultations. Uh, in a, in a different way than than just by putting out a questionnaire on a website and looking at what comes in. I think the the two key lessons that uh, that come uh, from that is is first of all, uh, it's a fantastic protection uh, against lobbyists in the institution because you you are working in in complete openness, so everyone can see. Uh, what's being proposed and what's on the table and and second it is a a spectacularly productive way of consulting stakeholders because <clears throat> because stakeholders listen to each other and they become aware of the the mutual dependencies of the mutual constraints and realize that that they are not looking at a situation that just has their own problem in it but they're looking at a situation which has multidimensional constraints, and and so through this listening process, they they collectively arrive at, at much more refined solutions than they would be able to to produce by simply giving a position on a, on a white paper from the commission.
0: So, what then is the resistance from policymakers to adopting this as as a more mainstream practice in their in their policy development,
1: well, some some have have done it wholeheartedly. We've had one commissioner uh, so far, uh, Violeta Bulls, who was a a member of the Juncker Commission, transport commissioner, who worked uh, fully participatory with all stakeholders, and who was uh, spectacularly successful in in actually preparing proposals uh, for the commission that that met no resistance because by the time the, the legal proposal was drawn up, everybody had been in a conversation and had been able to, to, to produce together the, the way forward. So, so what the bureaucrats essentially had to do was transform that shared understanding into a legal text. So we have seen it done, uh, but I think the, the main barrier is fear, fear of losing control. And the the, the um, lack lack of understanding what it takes to to really lead in a um, in a complex uh, situation like like the one uh, that we are in uh, we we are looking at um, at forms of um, we're looking at forms of. Um, sorry, I just have to connect myself. Yeah, <coughs> we're looking at at um, at levels of complexity where where there is very little linearity, uh, very few clear causalities, uh, where you can cannot even found them find them uh, with experts, uh, and and here we've we've in the participatory pl- practice we. We often lean on Dave Snowden's Kinevin model, uh, which which really is a good description of the of the EC challenges. That that you you are not in a simple, you're not even in a complex, but you're in a complicated, but you're in a complex situation where where only by by actually working on the system in iteration and and testing. Your, your uh, proposals, can you get to something that will actually work? So, so I think this, this is a, um, this fear of, of not being able to control things and to work uh, in true emergence, where you do not start out with, with a conviction of what you want to do, but, but where you actually work uh, with, with whatever comes out of, of your consultation. This this create this requires courage and it requires a a grade of, of inner ability to to stand still in the light of, of the storm of emergence that uh, mm-hmm. that is not for everyone
0: and to resist the you know the pressures of of time I suppose where you know people are looking for immediate and quick solutions to these uh, complex and wicked problems that perhaps. Uh, are not available unless you do take the time. So it's a real trade-off, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And, and it's, I mean, it's, the, it's interesting to see uh, if, you, if you take uh, managers and, and leaders and put them through a process where, where we who, who are trained in the practice know that, that if you start by going wide in your process and, and then spend some time in what we call the grown zone, you know, where where people are fairly disoriented and uh, and are, are still looking for solutions before you converge into something that that, that is uh, fully informed by all the ideas in the room and that that people can agree on. if you if you are not able to hold that, but go for a quick fix where where you diverge very briefly and then make a decision, inevitably the the decision making quality will be inferior. Uh, but it's easier to do and it, it doesn't require you to, to actually be able to to hold the space for for that kind of, uh, of almost chaos and dissent in the middle before you get to a solution.
0: Mm. So COVID-19 has obviously brought great change to uh, almost every aspect and element of the way we live and the way that we're governed you know, the great acceleration, the characterization of it really moving things forward. What sort of impact has it had on the process of um, participation?
1: Well, in, in March 2020, we, we were looking at, at complete lockdown in Brussels. And, uh, and we realized that, that this, you know, by April, we realized that this was not going away Anytime soon, and and so, in the in among the participatory practitioners, we started to to really look at how to take all of these practices online. So so I would say through the spring and the summer of 20, we we studied hard and studied with with some of the best uh, online hosts in uh, in the world. So so that by the fall we were ready to roll out a um, both training and participatory processes online in in formats that were in some ways better than doing it face to face and in some ways slightly inferior what we discovered especially is that that by going online we we tremendously uh, expanded the reach and and where people might have had difficulty in in coming to to events or to sessions uh, because of the geography if they were in Africa or Asia or wherever they were uh, piping them into to an event uh, on zoom uh, was uh, a no-brainer and and the quality we developed uh, was was in many ways also superior to to doing it face to-face we discovered that especially for for the more introverted, the fact that there was a screen between them and the world led to the quality of conversation improving, also for them. So, so there were some clear wins, and and what we lost was was the fermentation on the edges, where where people would still, in the coffee breaks, uh, generate ideas that that they otherwise wouldn't have in in the meeting itself. But the essence of art of hosting is really to to replicate the the coffee break in the actual meeting, and then as anyone who's been to a conference will know, uh, often the most stimulating part of conversation is what happens over lunch or or at coffee, uh, and and many of the methods were designed simply to to replicate that intimacy and and that openness that that you would get in in the breaks in the conference rather than in listening to keynotes and um, Going to post
0: the sessions. Hmm. Now, I'm sure it does. Well, actually, how to, how long does it take to a, acquire competency in being able to, you know, acquire this art of hosting and harvesting conversations? How 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 long would it generally take someone to who is reasonably competent to be able to acquire, uh, perhaps not mastery, but um, something close to to real um, competence in in being able to host and harvest conversations.
1: Well, there is I mean the basic training is is three days and that gives you a, a good grounding. And then then you you might want to add on, you know, half days onto that in, in specific aspects of the practice. Uh, but I would say, you know, after the, the three days you get your driver's license. And, and then then you don't want to rush off and do Formula One you know, in your first week. So, so after that, I mean, it's, it's uh, for a reason, it's called a practice. Uh, so, so you do need some practice. And, and what we, we try to do uh, in the practice, in the commission, is, is to work with apprentices. So you have a hosting team, and you really shouldn't host things alone. It does need a team. And, and adding to that, the people who are still learning, so that they can see maths in action, and uh, and pick up skills and uh, and ways of working from them. So, so Where it's you- hard to say. It's it's uh, it's also a question of uh, you know personal disposition. For some people, learning comes easier than for others. Mm. Where
0: do you see the intersection between participation and and the the practice of human centered design, which is increasingly popular?
1: well it's it's um, i mean what what is the difference between participation and human centered design uh, it's It's possibly one of of uh, focus where where human centered design uh, as I understand it would go out and and speak directly to say end users of a, of a social service or or an intervention uh, whereas participation which requires participation, so there you would apply the uh, the participatory leadership uh, methods to to get to a result, or you can participate at at uh, different levels uh, and the staff that that delivers the service uh, with the stakeholders in the shape of organizations that deliver services and so on so it's really for me a question of of focus uh, participation is is what underpins um, user-centred design. Mm.
0: So if, uh, and I know a number of people who would be listening to this podcast would be, uh, you know, quite taken and very interested in, uh, you know, the the practice. So if you were to give people sort of a top five tips of things that they could do, you know, prior to undertaking any sort of basic training, um, what are some of the things that they should be doing in preparation to, to become better? At the art of hosting and harvesting conversations.
1: Well, one one thing they could could do, uh, obviously, is to to hire some of the people who have already been trained. And uh, and in Australia, there is there is a vibrant community uh, of hosts, uh, and you can get in touch with them through through the the website uh, artofhostinginoneword.org, art of hosting in org, Dot org and, uh, and see, see how it actually works in practice. So, so that's, I think is a, is a good first step to, to have an, an, an orientation, but if you look at what, what you need to do, I mean, there is, there are a number of things you need to be aware of, I think, as a, as a, um, as a leader in communication and, and as someone who wants to go go participatory, uh, you have to realize first of all that or second in, in this case that that communication is is leadership made flesh. So so whatever you do is an expression of of your communication leadership. And you have to develop your listening skills and you have to to make sure that that you are ready to work with emergence uh, that that you are ready to to take what comes and work with that rather than having a a detailed view of of what should happen and as in in much leadership this is this is about you know looking looking at vision and big picture where uh, what is the issue that we need to resolve but but not having a predetermined view on how that should be done so so i think the the ability to to function in in this kind of emergence is is key uh, there is there's one more thing i think that that is that is really important uh, which is the in the trust part that you have to be seen as being authentic, which means you know, as, as they say in in ISO nine thousand, made simple, you know, do what you say and say what you do, so so that there's no there's no questioning of your authenticity and trustworthiness, uh, and and that that is, uh, in my experience, a, uh, a difficult step, for for many people in uh, in leadership.
0: Now, if I might, um, just, before we, just before we close out, I'm, I'm always intrigued by, you know, the wonderful careers that people have uh, in the public sector. And I just wonder if you might reflect on, you know, that, that young man um, from Copenhagen with his, you know, degrees in Chinese and political science heading out and then to sort of sit where you are now and look back. What have, what have you learnt? What do you know now that you didn't know then?
1: It's it's uh, it's funny, you know, when you're when you're a younger person and you look forward at the at the many forks in the road, uh, you see a lot of forks. But if you're at the other end and you look back, you see a straight line, and uh, and that that I think is is also is also my case. Uh, I see a, a a very straight line of of development uh, through through my. My um, so-called career. I think the the main the main thing that I have learned is that if you are uh, constantly in a in a position of openness and curiosity, uh, ready to explore uh, the paths that open to you, and and that you are also ready to engage and to uh, make real proposals for, for what needs to happen. You can do a lot in a bureaucracy, and I like to think of the European Commission as a very entrepreneurial bureaucracy. Uh, I have certainly written my own job descriptions for the past 20 years. <laughs> and, and part of that was was simply sensing into what, what did the organization need? And then writing up a detailed proposal and, and putting it to the powers that be, and and if you if you are open and if you are curious, you will also get a sensation of, of what is needed, and and by by uh, I would say if you also have the luck to to have uh, a management that is open to to suggestions, then then you can can shape. Your career in in many ways that that you wouldn't have even thought possible when you looked at the forking roads uh, at the beginning,
0: so where to from here for you you've officially retired as such, but you you you're really relatively young energetic obviously engaged thoughtful uh, you know in ga- uh, looking at at this emerging practice because really now is the time perhaps that more than ever. Uh, there is a need for people with your your skills and and expertise. So, how are you going to apply it in this next stage of your career?
1: Well, again, uh, I'm I'm in a state of, of openness and curiosity. There there are some things that, that worry me <laughs> that worry me greatly. Uh, and I mean, apart from what what are they? Well, well, what worries you in in the communication world? You know, the way the way we have moved. Uh, in some governments, from from a shall we say a position of of, um, of trying to do the best for for as many citizens as possible, you know, in in economic terms, achieving you know a, a classic Pareto optimality of of being doing the best for as many people as possible. We now see governments applying weaponized lies. Which uh, which are are not just economical with the truth, but which are downright wrong, and and using them and promoting them to to influence the citizenry to to act against its own interests, and and for me that is that is greatly worrisome. So so I think we it's one thing that that um, you know anything I can help in terms of reflecting on how how to equip. People to to understand better what a an unethical communication practice can do to them, uh, I think, would be very worthwhile exploring. Uh, I don't have a solution yet. I think the best one that's come up so far is is what George Lakoff, the the now retired professor at, of, of linguistics at Berkeley, came up with the truth sandwich, where where instead of promoting the framing. Uh, the obvious, uh, the obviously wrongful and, and non-evidence-based framing by by some, especially politicians. You should wrap it in truth and counter it. So, not repeat the framing that that comes initially, but but rather tell the truth, explain the evidence, mention uh, in an aside that uh, this is not the opinion of everyone, especially of so and so and then repeat the truth once again so that you wrap the falsehoods in the truth uh, as and I don't want to go into a discussion of what is truth and what is fact but uh, we could and and then and then present that uh, as as the reframing of the issue so so I'm I'm engaged in in thinking about that but uh, but I don't have a solution at the moment I, I do a little, as you said in your introduction. I do a little bit of work with communication leaders in in reflecting on the profession, and and how how the communication profession can can assume its its own leadership role in the in the next uh, couple of years. But but for me, you know, leadership isn't a title; it's a state of being, and so there is there's also personal development work that. That uh, needs to be included in in the package of, of what to do. So that's that's uh, the way the way I'm I'm heading. I'm I'm not sure I I want to go back to full time employment, uh, but I'm very much ready to have lunch with uh, with people <laughs> and uh, you know have a good conversation. So there you go.
0: And a very big thanks to Ian Anderson for spending some time with me back in 2021. Very grateful uh, that he was able to be so present, uh, so available, and so wise in the advice that he was able to give us in that podcast. And I know uh, many of you would have appreciated that. As always, we value your feedback and would greatly appreciate it if you did have time to take a moment to give us a rating or a review because it does help the podcast to be found. Now, there are well over 300 episodes out there to be discovered, so a little bit of a rating or review may help uh, to build the audience a little bit further. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of GovComs, but for the moment, I'm David Pembroke, and it's bye for now.
1: You've been listening to the GovCom's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.